once more and to breach dear friends. The word impossible is only in the dictionary of fools. If my descendants wish to be as strong as I was, they must study patience. The Ultra Working Podcast. All great events hang by your hair. The man of ability takes advantage of everything and neglects nothing that can give him a chance of success. I only write when I am inspired. Fortunately, I am inspired at 9 o'clock every morning. William Faulkner. I'm Sebastian Marshall. I'm one of the co-founders here at Ultraworking. And today we're going to explore a topic that's almost an obsession for me. It's something I'm searching for. It might even be impossible, but I can't stop searching for it. The topic literally obsesses me. And I think it's almost a holy grail of peak performance. So what's this obsession? To start, I want to introduce a term, morale responsiveness. It's, it's basically this. Everybody, to some extent, does better on their good days than they do on their bad days. That's not surprising. But for some people, on their best days, they do really, really, really well. They get really inspired. They really get hyped. They do exceptional. And on their bad days, they do really poorly. They're down in the dumps. Maybe they don't get anything done. Um, that would be someone that's high, highly responsive to morale. On the opposite side of the spectrum, there are people that are pretty steady no matter what. And on their bad days, they do a little bit worse, of course, but not substantially so. And, and they're kind of like clockwork. And that would be low responsiveness to morale. So everyone's morale responsive to some extent. And what I have never found is a person that can get all the boosts and the productivity gains and the inspiration, the glory and the greatness from their best days, someone that's highly morale responsive that doesn't also suffer more on their bad days, right? There's steady people where they don't get too hyped and they don't get too bummed out. And then there's people that swing a little more in performance. And I think the holy grail would be to get all the benefits of inspiration and glory and excitement on your best days and to be just neutral. Nothing's really bothering you. I'm steady on your bad days. And I've never found anybody that's been able to do this. It might not be possible, but let's explore why and look at what the mechanisms might be. And, and we'll look at everything from behavior patterns to biochemistry and positive and negative feedback loops and see if we can kind of get to the bottom of this. At the very least, it should be a profitable exploration. We can probably tune some of our habits, our ways of thinking, our ways of acting so we can perform better. But if we could get this, I, I, I think it's the holy grail. If you're the best when you're up. If you're out of this world good on your good days, and then you never get really too down on your bad days and you're still solid, I, I, I think that's something really special, but it might be impossible. So let's see if we can figure this out. So what, what do we mean when we say morale, right? So it's actually a word that when you look it up, it's really rather ill-defined. I'm going to Wikipedia, morale, also known as esprit de corps, is the capacity of a group's members to maintain belief in an institution or goal, particularly in the face of opposition or hardship. It's interesting. I don't think that's quite correct in that certainly we have our individual morale, and this is talking about the group, but something there. And I also think that line is interesting. Maintain belief 
in an institution or goal, particularly in the face of opposition or hardship. And then they use a quote, a journalist, H.R. Knickerbocker, 1941. They have this quote, an American general defined morale as, quote, when a soldier thinks his army is the best in the world, his regiment is the best in the army, his company the best in the regiment, his squad the best in the company, and that he himself is the best blankety-blank soldier man in the outfit. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it, right? So it's like when you think you're the best, everything is great, you're unstoppable, right? That's the highest levels of morale as defined here. And, you know, Wikipedia goes on, it links to another thing, employee morale and so on. And morale is often thought about, again, in group dynamics. And the article references some some useful concepts, you know, unit cohesion, and it kind of determines whether, uh, you know, people are like, like, likely to retreat or not, likely to blow off things they don't want to do or not, just whether there's an op- atmosphere of optimism or pessimism in a group, whether that's a military unit or at a company. And certainly we each individually experience morale, where some days we think we're great, and, and other days we don't think we're great. And again, there's people that are highly responsive to morale. We're on their great days. They can conquer the world and do. And they do amazing creative work or inventing or really glorious, expansive things, sometimes much faster than is normal. And on the other end of the spectrum are people that just don't really get bothered. And they wake up, they're having a bad day, and they just get to work and they do their stuff. And they wake up, they're having a great day, and they just get to work and do their stuff. And and, and the, the swing and the oscillation in performance is smaller for those people. Now, all else being equal, if you had to choose, I'd probably choose to be less morale responsive. Um, it's easier to build kind of a consistent and good life around that. And we could talk about how to kind of train and develop patterns for that. But I'm, I am intrigued by doing this really exceptionally good work on your best days. And for an example of that, let, let's take a look at Sylvester Stallone, writer, producer, actor, uh, American Hollywood, and built two multi-billion dollar film franchises, both the Rocky franchise and the Rambo franchise. And, you know, he described how he he watched a couple of movies, he saw a couple of boxing matches, and he got so inspired, you know, with the the concept of Rocky that uh, that he wrote the whole script, the whole screenplay for the Rocky, the first Rocky movie. He wrote it in three days. He wrote really an iconic, incredible film that was a blockbuster and became a major franchise in three days. And at one point, he says that he put in 20 hours nonstop to get it done. And, you know... I believe him. I think he did. So you write an iconic screenplay in three days. A lot of screenwriters would be very happy to write a great great screenplay in, in three weeks or three months even, you know, right? And, you know, he said in, a, in an article, and we'll link all these in the show notes, uh, I had this opportunity and I wasn't going to let it slip by. I was young and I had an incredible amount of energy and I wrote it in a fury. I was very excited about the whole thing. I had a feel for the streets and I loved films like Mean Streets and Marty and On the Waterfront and I felt inspired. So Stallone just got hyper inspired and went for it. And furthermore, and this is what really made his career, uh, once he wrote the script, people liked it. And he said, okay, I want to I direct uh, or be involved and I want to star in this. I want to play Rocky. And when he went to people in Hollywood, and it's from a different article, we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, He went to the the Hollywood people and and they said they read the script and loved it except for one thing. They didn't want to have Sylvester Stallone play the main character Rocky. You can't blame them. Stallone was an unknown actor at the time 
And the other Hollywood types would be a much safer bet at the box office. They were looking at Ryan O'Neill, Burt Reynolds, and others to play Rocky Balboa. They offered Stallone $360,000 for the script with the condition that he wouldn't play Rocky. Remember that he had no car, $106 in the bank, and sold his dog to pay the bills. I think that's a true story. Stallone said, quote, I thought, you know what? You've got this poverty thing down. You really don't need much to live on. I sort of figured it out. I was in no way used to the good life. So I knew that in the back of my mind that if I sell this script and it does very, very well, I'm going to jump off a building if I'm not in it. There's no doubt in my mind. I'm going to be very, very upset. So this is one of those things when you just roll the dice and fly by the proverbial seat of your pants and you just say, I've got to try it. I've just got to do it. I may be totally wrong and I'm going to take a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. And obviously, he got the got in the movie. They paid him a million dollars to both uh, sell the script and to act in it. And it went on to be a gigantic success. So that, to me, looks like somebody that's highly morale responsive, right? That he gets in this inspired rush. And then you see the second stage of that, which is he's really high on himself and doing really great at this point of his life. He's inspired. He's hyped. And so he doubles down and makes a further bet of like, I'm, I'm not even going to sell. I'm not going to take $360,000 in cash, which is a lot of money today, but there's even more money 30, 40 years ago, whatever it was. And he says, no, I'm going to go all the way with this. Um, and, and we'll come back to that, right? So like, oh, okay, that's cool. Who wouldn't want to be that? Let's Let's all do this kind of amazing art. Let's kind of, you know, let, let's go for it. Let's be highly morale responsive. If that's what you get. That's great. I, I want to make a billion dollar film franchise or do whatever inventing I want to do or do computer science or build a great business or write the best PhD thesis ever or, or, or whatever you're going for in, in life. Sounds great. Let's do it. But on the flip side of the spectrum, there's a book that, that um, the seventh chapter on it, the writing chapter in this book, Extreme Productivity by Bob Posen, was extremely influential on me. And, and he's advocating the exact opposite approach. He's advocating being low morale responsive in, in my terms. And he goes through and he breaks down chapter seven. It's kind of boring. It works really well. It's boring. It's not like inspired to get hyped when you're reading it, of, of course, right? Um, but there's there's a frequently asked question section in this at the end of this chapter on writing by Bob Posen, who is a, a very successful attorney. He became the head of a major finance company. Um, he's involved in writing U.S. government legislation. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. And he like goes home every day at like 6 p.m. and has dinner uh, with his family and like plays tennis and just doesn't seem stressed out. So this is someone's low morale responsive giving advice to be less morale responsive. And he's taking this question. Question. I take forever to write. I compose a sentence and then rewrite it over and over and over because I'm not satisfied with how it reads. Actually, no, that's a good one. That's about perfectionism. Let's go ahead. Um, better question. Question. Since I hate the idea of procrastination, I try to compose my entire article all at once. But after a few hours, I get stuck. Should I try to break it up into smaller pieces? Posing answers. Yes, you should divide a long document into smaller pieces, writing for several hours each day for several days with regular breaks. Now, note, by the way, this is the exact opposite of what Sylvester Stallone did, right? He wrote three days nonstop. Okay, continuing. Posen says, Professor Bob Boyce of SUNY at Stony Brook came to that conclusion when he studied the way his colleagues wrote 
lengthy research articles. Some colleagues were quote-unquote binge writers working many hours at a time in a smaller number of sessions. He found that binge writers were particularly likely to become frustrated and stuck in the middle of those long sessions. By contrast, colleagues who wrote on a more regular schedule tended to write with fresh ideas in mind and were more able to reflect effectively upon their work. In the end, regular writers composed as much as binge writers during each session, despite spending only one-third as much time, which is crazy. And then he links Bob Boyce's paper from the abstract. Bob Boyce said, the author reviews traditional beliefs about creative illness and suggests that their endorsement of euphoric binging misleads writers. Productive creativity seems to occur more reliably with moderation of work duration and of emotions. Note that that's what we're talking about. And of emotions not with the fatigue and ensuing depression of binge writing. The author compares binge writers to a matched sample of novice professors who wrote in brief daily sessions and with generally mild emotions. Binge writers A, accomplished far less writing overall. B, got fewer editorial acceptances. C, scored higher on the Beck depression inventory. And D, listed fewer creative ideas for writing. These data suggest that creative illness defined by its common emotional state for binge writers, i.e. hypomania and its rushed euphoria brought on by long intense sessions of working, followed by depression, offers more problems such as working in an emotional rushed fatiguing fashion than magic. All right, so... That's the counter-argument. The steady as she goes, let's not try to get really emotional and hyped. Let's do a little bit of work each day. Let's do it very stable. And we'll explore this, but that implies that if you put in a good three hours and you could go longer, you might break it off for the day because that's your routine, knowing that you're going to come back into it tomorrow. Again, the opposite of what Sylvester Stallone did when he wrote Rocky. So we have these two arguments here right? One is like, hey, if you can get hyped and you can produce a great screenplay in three days, then you're going to roll the dice and insist you're not going to sell it for $360,000 when you're broke. You're going to insist on acting on it to, to even double down. Then, you know, it worked. That works. Sylvester Stallone's had a very successful career. Seems like he's had a great life in many, many respects. On the other hand, Pose and Boyce, they're like looking at young professors that are trying to do the Sylvester Stallone thing. They're miserable. They're depressed. They're doing worse work. It's taking three times as long. And, you know, for me, I actually adopted Posen's writing methods, right? So I used to be a binge writer, an inspiration writer, as, as, uh, as I call it. I used to just get an inspired state and write. And if I was inspired, I'd write. And if I wasn't, I would not write. And it took me about, you know, 40-ish hours to write a 6,000-word essay those days. Once I got really good at breaking down my work, outlining, being able to pick it up and put it down whenever I wanted, scheduling it over time, um, the amount of time it took me to write a 6,000-word essay went down to the 12 to 18-hour range after practice. It was, it was brutal when I was practicing. There was a long period where I was less effective and less happy. But eventually, I got down to 12 to 18 hours instead of 40, which is, again, roughly that three times as productive number matched my experience. So, like, that's better do I think my best, 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 highest quality work is a little bit worse than when I was an inspiration writer? Maybe. Wasn't reproducible, couldn't do it on demand. Now I can write much higher average quality at a very high standard um, faster. Is my very peak work a little worse when I'm not on that? Maybe. Okay, so let's confirm that. Let's look at the flip side of Stallone, right? And, you know, he said in a couple of interviews years later, quote, Stallone, I'm impressionable and given to highs and lows, not depression, but I go through this carnival of emotions all the time. Do I know who I am? I know I'm incredibly unpredictable, 
And that's the only thing I'm sure of. Hmm. Interesting. So he's like, you know, not depression, but kind of matches what Boyce and Posen are saying. And later when he was asked in this article, which we'll also link in the show notes, when asked, do you have a mantra? Stallone said, be realistic and take it as far as you can, but know your limitations. You can't be better than you are. Many people, and I've done it, overshoot their abilities. And then you have this incredible sense of rejection and anger. Huh. Isn't this fascinating? All right. I want to layer on one more concept before we move on. So nobody likes being down in the dumps and, you know, you get, you get off this peak euphoria, you sold a movie, you're starring in a movie, you get paid a million dollars for it when you're broke, it changes your life, you become kind of made in Hollywood. Um, and then, you know, you try to overshoot your abilities and so on. We'll talk about why that happens a little bit or explore it at least. Um, and then you wind up depressed, angry, rejected. Like Posen and Boyce look at that and they're like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to have a good life. And Stallone looks at that and is like, you know, wow, I had all this success, but like, man, I didn't like that part of it. That was no good. Well, here's kind of a funny thing that that we should look at a little bit, which is there's this term called depressive realism. You know, we'll, we'll link the Wikipedia on this in the show notes. Uh, depressive realism is a hypothesis developed by Lauren Alloy and Lynn Yvonne Abramson, uh, that depressed individuals make more realistic inferences than non-depressed individuals. So basically, depressive realism says that like when somebody's down in the dumps, they're more likely to say, hey, what are the odds of that deal closing, of that sale closing? Whereas the optimist will say like 70%, the depressed person will be like, yeah, it's like 10%. At best. And, you know, the optimist will say, like, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, like, win this major sports competition. The depressed person's like, yeah, that chance based on where your training is at, like, you're just not good enough against the field. Your chances of winning are virtually nil. Uh, it's no fun, right, as both the depressed person and the person anyone listening to the depressed person. But the depressive realism thing means people are more likely to be correct. So probably not worth it. It's incredibly unpleasant. But layering on one additional element to this morale responsivity, the more responsive morale you are, the more you get totally hyped and you go on these patterns of behavior where you double down, you do these long runs, you run yourself into the ground a little bit, followed by depression. Well, you get the benefits of that hyper, hyper effectiveness if you can get them and harness them and do it like Stallone. Um, and, and Stallone is by no means the only example of that. There are many, many, many examples. I believe Nietzsche wrote uh, Zarathustra in like, again, like three days or something, which is an incredibly monumental uh, work in literature and philosophy. There's a lot of examples of this. So you get all the benefits of doing the things really fast. And then with the ensuing crash and the depression that comes with it, you might then see things more clearly. You see all the flaws in your work. You see all the difficult problems and, and variables and constraints in your field, which might give you more ideas such that when you're back up, you perform at a higher level again as, as a more learned person. Horrible way to live, to be clear, subjectively, totally unpleasant, but that's what it is. So, okay, again, morale responsiveness is a spectrum. Everybody's a little bit responsive in morale. Everyone does at least a little better on their good days than their bad days. Some people take it to um, extremes where on their best days, they do legendary performance, literally 30x what's expected in a field. You know, you write a great screenplay in three days instead of 90 days. That's incredible. And it was a very big success too, right? And and that's great. You're more prone to crashes. You're more prone to getting down. You have a bad time when you get down. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you just like 
steady as she goes. Like life is good. You know, you bad days, like, all right, whatever, do my work. Good days, like, all right, whatever, do my work. Um, and this is talked about. It's very interesting. This, this great book called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. Um, he, he profiled a bunch of just everybody, musicians, mathematicians, uh, politicians, writers, just, you know, inventors, you know, economists, all sorts of people. And, and just anybody that does anything creative, he profiled a bunch of them, which is what are their daily routines? And again, you see people that are just like hyper-disciplined. They always write 2,000 words a day from 9 a.m. to noon, and that's it. And then there's people that are like drinking and doing drugs and staying up all night and are incredibly unproductive and then occasionally like just ship a masterwork. Um, and, and it really is just like kind of, you see these kind of two extremes where it's really heavily represented. There's not like a little bit wild or a little bit undisciplined people. There's people that are full on Dionysian, chaotic, up when they're up, down when they're down. And there's like people that are really like regimented and orderly, um, and they don't really get up when they're up and, and down when they're down. So again, I think the Holy Grail would be if you can get those Stallone, Nietzsche, levels of performances when you're up and then not crash and then just be solid when you're down. And it might well be impossible and we're going to explore why. So that is kind of the general thesis. Um, and so what what is causing this? What What is causing this, right? And there's I think there's a lot of levers um, and there's a lot of factors on there. And let's start with a really, really simple one, right? Let's talk about short-term behavior, right? So, you know, let's say you were working on, and if this, if you totally can't relate with this, then I assure you some people can relate with this and some people's exactly how they live. So let's say you had like a, some creative work you wanted to do. And I use creative in the most broad sense. It could be, you know, computer programming, it could be writing a legal brief. It could be, could be anything that, that has some creating components, not just you know, you're not doing bookkeeping and accounting where there's like a, a way to do it. You're like doing something where there's heavy amount of subjective judgment um, involved and in, in you're creating it. So in those cases, right, in those cases, let's say you've got creative work to do and you've been kind of wanting to work on it on Saturday, but you, you wake up kind of late and you kind of putz around and it's like 6 p.m., 7 p.m. on Saturday and then just a flash of inspiration hits you, 7 p.m. Okay, everybody will get out their notebook, jot down a couple of ideas or whatever. And here's the question. Do you start hitting the coffee and the espresso right away to try to run that out and to produce that? If you do, you're going to mess up your sleep tonight. You start hitting the coffee hard at 7 p.m. You ain't going to bed for a while, right? Or if you do, you're not sleeping great, right? So do you run that out? If you wake up at 10 p.m. at night, you're just falling asleep, right? And you got a great idea. Do you just like crank on the coffee and say, well, okay, let me mess my sleep schedule up, right? And you certainly can. Um, and if you do, you're more likely to get that in the moment, real time inspired productivity when you're inspired, but you're more likely to compromise the next day. So that's in the very short term behavior. Now in the longer term, how regularly do you do this? So I, I find that people that are low morale responsive are far more likely to stop working even when they're doing well after they've put in some set amount of work, right? So somebody that's low morale responsive might say they're, uh, you know, take Kai, my co-founder, who's, who's great. He might say, I'm going to code um, and I'm going to do some some coding. I'm going to do some some front-end design and I'm going to hook up some APIs and do some coding. And I'm going to do that from, you know, from the time I wake up till about lunch. And even if he's in a really good flow, after three, four hours and lunchtime rolls around, he'll just set his coding down and go have lunch. And, you know, he might be planning on coming back and starting to work again at one. And, you know, then around five, six, like 
he'll be done. And if he's like really inspired, he might run it out till seven, but he won't run it out till midnight or one or two. I, I don't think I've ever seen him do that. Um, I've, I've seen him under, on the rare case that we get in like a deadline crunch, which we, we try to avoid. And, and he in particular tries to avoid again, patterns of life. Um, aside from the rare, I've only seen this a few times, deadlines that hit, and I've known Kai for 10 years and we've had a lot of collaborations. I've just never seen that. I've never seen him put in a 20 hour day on coding. I have seen other people put in 20 hour days of coding and those people tend to, you know, get exhausted, burn out, go through those depression things, right? So even when Kai is up, he will cut the work a little bit short. Um, he'll preserve his kind of patterns and behaviors. Um, and then he'll go, you know, from there. And what you see there is a bit of a, a feedback loop. So the macro question is when you're inspired, are you willing to run yourself into the ground, right? If you write a screenplay for 20 hours straight, I mean, you're going to be tired afterwards, right? It's like 20 hours. Like what time did he start? If that was 9 a.m., then Stallone, then he finished at 5 a.m. the next day if he went nonstop for 20 hours, right? Uh, yeah, that's going to mess you up. There's almost no time that you could wake up that you then work for 20 hours straight that you are not messed up the next day. And furthermore, if you're like in a super creative flow, then someone might have only like napped for four hours and then and then done it again. Um, and, you know, because the body has taken some damage and you're not recovering fast enough, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to coffee, you're going to do junk food potentially. Um, you might neglect some some meals, some grooming, working out. Maybe he worked out or maybe he didn't, don't know. Um, so, so we see kind of these behavior loops there. And... Looking a little bit deeper on that, I think it's worth looking at the concepts of positive feedback loops and of negative feedback loops, right? So positive feedback loop is something that uh, as you get more of something, you get even more of it. So uh, Wikipedia, positive feedback is a process that occurs in a feedback loop in which the effects of a small disturbance on a system include an increase in the magnitude of such. That is, A produces more of B, which in turn produces more of A, right? And then Wikipedia says, in contrast, a system in which the results of a change act to reduce or counteract it has negative feedback. Um, there's a lot of importance there in science and engineering control theory and whatever else, right? So positive feedback loop is like get inspired start working, get like totally thrilled that the work is going well, keep working, get more thrilled, keep working, say, this is great. I don't want to lose this. Hit the caffeine, hit the Red Bull, sell out your habits, <laughs> skip showering, maybe skip meals, right? And so on. This will build on itself as the emotion builds up and up and up, except at the same time, there's a negative feedback process, which is if you're running faster then your ability to recover from the fatigue, faster than your ability to heal if you're not eating, right? There's negative feedback on the other side of it. And, you know, negative feedback is is when a process uh, going up kind of gives you its its opposite and, 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 and gives you the opposite. So like negative feedback, the famous examples of thermostat, right? If your house is cold, it's the winter, the thermostat turns on. Once it hits the temperature that it's supposed to hit, it turns off. So when you get in these hyper-inspired runs, You've got positive feedback where it's like thriving and building on each other and you're getting hyped and hyped and hyped. Simultaneously, you're, you're probably getting some negative feedback and that you're probably taking damage and, and, and not healing and not recovering fast enough from all of this, right? Which, okay, there's already probably some implications there and, and we'll revisit those in a second, right? Relatedly, I think there's a, a subjective perception component and there's some assumptions Right. So I think a lot of people that, that have that euphoric creativity, that, that the days when they're good are really so good, I, I think they start to get convinced that they can't 
produce when they're down. That, you know, if you're down, then, well, I guess I'm just, just hosed. I don't have it today. And, you know, I was talking to Luca Dover, who's one of the backend developers here at Ultraworking, and he was a uh, national champion and record holder in swimming in his country, Slovenia. And I said, you know, how, how much did you used to train, Luca, when you were swimming? And he did something like eight workouts a day, six days a week when he was training. He was training basically at the Olympic level. He was he was young, so he still had to go to school and stuff. But, you know, he's training a lot. And six days a week, you know, did, did 20 plus hours, some of it in the pool, some of it on land. And I said to him, so so some days you wake up and, and you just don't want to train. What did you do? And he's like, well, it's a good question. So what I found, he said, is... First thing is, okay, do I have energy in my body, right? Have I eaten enough food and, and, and things like that? Because if I haven't, then there's not much you could do with it. But as long as I have, but I just don't want to. I'm just subjectively feeling down. I'm paraphrasing him a little bit. I found that once I got in the pool and started working out, ideally at like a recovery pace, not too intense. After about 15 to 20 minutes, I was feeling great. And I was feeling better than if I hadn't trained, which is fascinating, Right. That's a pretty low morale responsive thing where you're just consistently doing your whatever 40 something workouts. Some of them are quite short, um, but you're doing your 20 plus hours of training in the pool and on the land, you know, every week, six days a week. And if you don't want to train, you just go train anyways. And, you know, you might not set a record on that. But again, for him, it was training. It was building up towards a goal, right? Whereas if you're doing creative work where you only care about your peak output, then, you know, when you're not up, you might be like, hey, I have no chance of doing exceptional work today, right? And I need exceptional work. And, and, and this delta, this difference between when I'm exceptional and when I'm not is so large. So a lot of times people that, that are high morale responsive build this assumption that they can't produce on a day that they're not at least above average, which, you know, is going to at best be, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be half of days, but it's not going to be every day. You're not going to wake up feeling great every single day necessarily. Or maybe you can, and that's the holy grail if we can get there. Um, that would be another path there. I think it's also worth looking at the biochemistry aspects of it. And, you know, I'm very slightly hesitant. I'm very slightly hesitant to go here for fear that it's it's misinterpreted or misunderstood. But I think it's illustrative, and I, I think we're all smart people, and I'll probably make some caveats in a second. But, you know, I'm a big admirer of the mathematician Paul Erdős, And he was, you know, really prolific. I think he he did more, more papers and conjectures in math than just about anyone else in history. He's really famous in math. There's a great biography about him called The Man That Loved Only Numbers. And, and he's wonderful. And, you know, he had a bunch of kind of fun quotes, like, you know, a mathematician is a device for turning coffee into theorems. So like fun stuff. But, you know, it said uh, about Erdish, after his mother died in 1971, Erdish became quite depressed. His physician, his physician prescribed amphetamines. Erdish took Benzedrine or Ritalin almost every day for the last 25 years of his life. Sometimes he took both. Long-term use of amphetamines often exacerbates depression. When used chronically, too, amphetamines usually induce stereotyped thought and behavior rather than creativity. But Paul Erdős seems to be the exception. He felt living on speed helped him to create math. At an age when most mathematicians have long since burned out, his output was certainly prodigious. Um, and then it goes on to talk about some of the bad sides of it, that what he did promotes obsessive compulsive behavior, and he did start acting obsessively compulsive. He washed his hands 50 times a day and things like that. You know, his friends got worried about him because this is this really brilliant wonderful, wonderful man. He was doing a lot of drugs. 
And you know, one of his friends named Ronald Graham went and bet him $500 that he couldn't get off of all stimulants for a month. And Erdős went cold turkey. He got off for 30 days and, uh, and, and was able to do it. And uh, Graham paid the bet. And then Erdős said, you've shown me that I'm not an addict, but I didn't get any work done. I'd get up in the morning and stare at a blank piece of paper. I'd have no ideas, just like an ordinary person. You've set mathematics back a month. It's like, huh, okay. Now you could see why I'm hesitant and cautious to bring this up. Erdős um, said himself, you know, after uh, Atlantic Magazine did a profile on him and it mentioned his, his amphetamine habit, Erdős said, you know, I like the article except for one thing. You shouldn't have mentioned that stuff about amphetamines. It's not that you got it wrong. It's just that I don't want kids who are thinking about going to mathematics to think they have to take drugs to succeed. And he's right, first. Second, he was already an extremely well-established, high-performing mathematician before he got into it. My stance on these sorts of things are I don't do any recreational drugs at all. Um, and if I'm looking at something performance-enhancing, even as simple as caffeine, I'll always do that legally and, and with medical supervision um, if you're doing anything else. And furthermore, though, and more importantly, I think if you're even thinking of anything like that, you absolutely have to take your talent um, and, and your natural ability to its maximum before you even consider using anything performance enhancing. Like somebody was thinking of doing steroids. I've never done them except for after a major car crash, motorcycle crash that I was in. The doctor prescribed me some. But aside from that, I never did steroids. If I was going to do steroids, I would get myself fully trained first. I'd put in two years in the gym first to hit my natural kind of the low end of my natural potential first. So don't recommend drugs. Don't do drugs. Super dangerous, super not a good thing and certainly not what we're advocating. And I hope this is understood uh, in, intelligently. But the reason that I brought this up is when you look at those, it's like a lot of people don't understand how pharmacology affects biochemistry. A lot of people think um, any substance you ingest is, is like doing things to you. And, and from my understanding, that's not really true. Like the most common types of antidepressants, um, SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, it's not that whatever SSRI you take makes you happy. It just makes your own serotonin broadly called the happiness hormone, it just makes your own serotonin stick around for longer. It's a reuptake inhibitor. It just means it just like stays in your system for longer. The SSRI itself is not really affecting you. It's your own body's wells of serotonin are increased in your brain. So when you look at this, this is talking about what Erdish did. Um, we'll link this in the show notes. Amphetamines are potent psychomotor stimulants. Their use causes a release of the excitatory neurotransmitters dopamine and noradrenaline, norepinephrine, adrenaline, from storage vessels in the central nervous system. So once again, that's your own body releasing its own stores of dopamine and adrenaline, right? Okay. Amphetamines may be sniffed, swallowed, snorted, or injected. They induce exhilarating feelings of power, strength, energy, self-assertion, focus, and enhanced motivation. The need to sleep or eat is diminished. I think you can see where we're going with this, by the way. The release of dopamine typically induces a sense of aroused euphoria, which may last several hours. Unlike cocaine, amphetamine is not readily broken down by the body. Feelings are intensified. The user may feel he can take on the world. Okay. The euphoria doesn't last. There follows an intense mental depression and fatigue. Amphetamine depletes the neuronal stores of dopamine in the mesolimbic pleasure centers of the brain. 
More than any other illegal drug, speed is associated with violence and antisocial behavior. Occasional light and infrequent usage is probably relatively harmless, but heavy chronic use can lead to stereotypes of behavior, depressive disorders, blah, 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 lots of bad stuff and disintegration and psychosis and you know, hallucination and cardiovascular. Yeah, really bad stuff. Um, why do we bring this up? So it would seem to me that a lot of the ways that people that are on the maximum end of the spectrum on morale are responsive is that they engage in behaviors that produce similar biochemical internal reactions uh, to, to, to drugs, to stimulant drugs, amphetamines specifically, right? And again, you look at this, you know, it's like the need to eat or sleep is diminished, you know, focus and enhanced motivation, self-assertion, strength, energy, feelings of power, exhilarating, feel like you take on the world, doesn't last, falls by mental depression and, and fatigue. So this suggests one of the major issues with what I'm looking for is the Holy Grail, which is how do you be conquering the world on your good days and not be down on your bad days? And if this is a primarily biochemical reaction, if you're just kind of pouring gas on the fire, eventually you run out of gas uh, to pour on the fire. And there's a lot more heat and smoke and stuff as a result, right? So... The reason we bring this up, aside from the fact that a lot of talented people have used sometimes intelligently and sometimes in a massive, self-destructive, horrible way, stimulants, and, and, and before anyone gets too, uh, you know, oh my goodness, it's like, well, caffeine's an incredibly powerful psychoactive stimulant, by the way. If caffeine was invented today, there's no way it would get approved by the FDA. Zero chance it would get approved by the FDA uh, if it was invented today. Nicotine and alcohol are also incredibly, incredibly strong drugs. People just don't realize that because of their commonness. But you can see how a lot of people, you know, want to kind of stoke the the fan of the fire when they're up. And, you know, on the, the, the high end of that, that might be Sigmund Freud with both his cigars and his cocaine. But on the low end of that, that's just pounding coffee, which I think we all know a lot of people that do. So what's caffeine usage in the developed world? So over 90% of people use caffeine, right? So you, you pound the coffee and, okay, that's going to like continue the reaction of, of dopamine, of adrenaline, norepinephrine specifically, you know, adrenaline. And then you're going to run yourself into the ground. So, okay, let's explore. Um, so you got the biochemical components. And if you think, and I think this might be the case, I don't know. But if you think that high morale responsiveness and higher productivity when you're up is largely a biochemical phenomenon, then some people have more of an ability to, just through intellectual pursuits, run themselves hard to re release more dopamine and more norepinephrine, more adrenaline. And then they'll feel more up. And then it's like a that's a positive loop in one sense. Like I'm hyped, so I'm doing more work and I'm getting more hyped, so I'm doing more work. But the negative feedback process is running at the same time where it's like, and I'm not eating and I'm running out the wells of these hormones in my body and a crash is coming, right? So if it's primarily biochemical, then what I want might not be possible, though it is interesting to read about Erdish, who had an amazing, almost superhuman immunity to the downsides of stimulants. And, and he was a, a weird guy, and I say that lovingly because he's a hero of mine. He is incredibly neurotypical, and, and, and uh, his brain certainly worked very differently than other people's, and I would just never encourage anybody to do anything dangerous, so please don't. I only bring this up because we... I find it's a pretty good analog. I find that even people that are not using any substances at all, or maybe just using coffee, are probably getting something similar to the reactions you get from amphetamines if you're on that maximal 
end of the creative spectrum, followed by the crash. So what do we make of this, right? Well, I do think there's some things that everyone can do um, and can benefit and train um, and use. So regardless of where you're at on the morale responsiveness spectrum, first off, you want to learn about yourself. And that was, you know, Stallone's quote. Do you have a mantra? He said, be realistic and take it as far as you can, but know your limitations. You can't be better than you are. Now, mind you, this is a guy that made multiple multi-billion dollar film franchises and is really an iconic figure and built a really incredible life and really delighted and entertained and inspired millions and millions and millions of people, right? So he's saying, know your limitations. It's not a, it's not a like, well, it's like, okay, you know, that's a pretty high bar when he says, know your limitations. He's not saying play small, right? In life. But certainly when we look at this, we can get better at self-management regardless of where we're on the spectrum. And we want to learn, okay, are you morale responsive or not? You probably know right away. And, and probably a lot of people are dead in the middle of it. And that's, that's cool too. But, but in general, I do, I do think this is probably more of a, a bimodal distribution than a normal distribution. I think there's probably, I, I think there's probably maybe more people to the left and the right of it than you'd expect in a normal distribution, right? So you probably know right away, okay, are you a person that's like on routine, on your good days, you're a little better, on your bad days, you're a little worse, but you're not like, you know, it's not huge. Or you like, yeah, I just kill when I'm up. I'm just amazing. I'm just the best. And like when you're down, you're just like useless, right? That'd be the kind of the, the other end uh, of the spectrum. And first off, you want to learn that. And the more your morale responsive, the more you want to protect your morale obviously, right? And for myself, by the way, I'm, I'm morale responsive. Kai's not. I think that's a nice synergy because I think we get to understand collectively a lot of our different customers. And, you know, for me, it's like making sure that I'm setting some baseline of hitting some targets and well-being. And I've got elaborate morning routines and, and protocols and things like that, as well as getting some productivity and performance each day. If things have been rough, Lately, I like to start with like easy stuff and easy doesn't mean necessarily technically easy because like sometimes something is boring and emotionally difficult, like a huge pile of paperwork, but like something that's like easy and enjoyable and like nailing a couple of those to be like, okay, I got this. And then that'll kind of kick in the like, okay, I'm on this and the perception. Likewise, the biggest thing, and this, this takes probably longer in training, it's easier said than done, but you know, getting to the point like Luca where he's like, yep, I don't feel good, but if I go get in the pool, I'm going to feel better. Let me just make sure I've eaten enough. I'm just going to go swim now. Yep. Okay. I feel better. Um, you know, getting to that point where you just get started and, and, you know, doing some training and the ability to thrash a little bit before you get started, you know, and get really running, I think is really valuable. You know, so a lot of people, if they feel bad, don't have the ability to put 20 to 90 minutes in. And I found when I had quote unquote writer's block, it would never take me more than 90 minutes to get over it. Right. And again, I had a method I recommend Chapter 7 of Extreme Productivity by Bob Posen on writing. You have to learn it. It took me a while, um, the mechanics of it. But if you can sit down and work for 90 minutes, even if it's not going great, usually it kicks into gear intellectually, even on complex synthesis creative work, right? And if it's as simple as going to the gym or just cleaning your house or something, cooking cooking some meals, that's now not hard, right? You could do that. Um, meditation as a general training thing helps. You could do the classical mindfulness meditation where you concentrate on your breath. That certainly helps you get through boring stuff and endure it. There's also more um, for busy people. There's there's ways to do you know mindfulness training in the gym or even in a meeting. If you're in a boring meeting, just like force yourself or uh, if I want to be more mindful sounding about it, gently bring back your concentration to concentrating when people are talking about in a boring meeting. You know, feeling every rep in the gym is a great place to train. So you can multitask. Um, you can use anything as a training opportunity to, to train that ability to concentrate and bring your concentration back around. Certainly as well on the high morale responsive part of it, I think fire breaks are really important. It's what I call them. It's a metaphor 
for you know when people like when a forest fire is going you just like knock over all the trees and and underbrush and whatever and put sand there so the fire can't spread anymore um i think fire breaking yourself so that every single week you've got something you come back to a very simple weekly review that you'll do even in a bad week um and likewise major resets on a monthly review um, I think are really valuable. We have uh, we have a monthly planning template at UltraWorking, by the way, ultraworking.com slash monthly, um, if you want to check that out. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, at least monthly, you should be doing resets. So these sorts of things help. Though in the longer term, it might be trade-offs. It might be hard decisions to make of like, I don't work after X time. I don't have caffeine after X time. Um, I do cleaning, admin, whatever might be what you need to turn off some of the positive feedback loops around it. But I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. A lot of times I'm really slow on my email, but I'm a reasonably good inventor. I can invent things. And, you know, I might trade off being a little bit bad at administration to having a little more inventing. And that might also mean, you know, pushing myself a little more, you know, when I'm up and I've got the gestalt of how to use Markov chains to like figure something out and, you know, shape behavior or whatever. If I've got something I'm close to figuring it out, I might run it out and neglect admin and I might mess my sleep schedule up and things. So that might be correct. So it really kind of depends. I think the more your work benefits from routine and consistency, the more you want to make yourself less morale responsive. Now, on the flip side of the equation, how do you become more morale responsive? And like, why would anyone want to? It means you have a more turbulent life and such. But, you know, I find a lot of people that are reserved um, and quiet don't try to get these crazy chain reactions going and get a morale kind of hype cycle going. And for the person that's already well grounded, if you could do this in a limited extent, it can be really glorious. Now, one thing that will sometimes get that going is having a deadline that's not like an aversive, I got to get this garbage out deadline, but like a deadline to have something be as good as it can be, right? So like you're submitting a prototype of something to some competition or something and like it's fun, you like it, whatever, but you got like three days to get it done or, or you notice, right? You notice that there's a, you know, some sort of competition that started a month ago and the submission deadline's three days, you just found out about it today and just like, you know what, screw it, let's enroll, let's go as hard as we can for three days and let's be excited about it. Um, I think that's a really great jumping off point to do it for, you know, a limited run. And certainly to synthesize both celebration, by the way, before I go on, celebration, I find a lot of people that are more have the more equanimity, the lower morale responses, they don't celebrate very much. And I think the act of celebrating, including vigorously celebrating, and I'm not, I'm not meaning like go out and do something, though you can, but I'm talking about like really like strike a ridiculous pose and take a photo, high five, be a little more gregarious, a little more assertive, a little more expansive, be like, yeah, we got it, we killed it. Um, and even more, even more like that than like that. You, know, you can get kind of a, group feedback thing going where everyone gets that going on. Yeah, these are things to try out, right? And if that's not your natural personality, you could certainly try it out in limited circumstances and endeavors to do that. But to synthesize, I think the holy grail would be if you can get that write a screenplay in three days level of performance when you're up and not take the damage when you're down, I think that'd be the holy grail. How would you do that? And to the extent that it's even possible, it's certainly not easy. I, I know no one Literally, I don't know anyone. If it's you, email me, let me know. But I don't know anyone that has that hyper expansive, max morale responsive chain reaction thing when they're up that doesn't go down. I just don't know anyone. I know a lot of people. I don't know anyone, right? If you could, it would be great. So I wonder if we mapped it out, where does the damage come from? Is the damage where you go down, is it in the last 10%? Could you get 90% or 80%? 
of that chain reaction, but still stop at midnight instead of 5 a.m.? Would that work? I don't know. Um, certainly, universally true, if you could have some sort of automated systems that monitor your well-being, and a lot of progress is being made on, on biomarkers right now, on kind of getting feedback from your body on how you're doing, things like heart rate variability and kind of sleep patterns and, you know, getting your blood work done is, is getting cheap to see what your, your hormones look like and getting everything from, you know, your insulin level, your different hormone levels checked out. And that stuff's just starting to get cheap and possible. And most people don't know about it. I think 20 years from now, we're going to have really, really good tools and devices, you know, having some sort of automatically generated, because right now it's a huge pain. You still got to go to the lab if you want to get your blood work done. And, you know, the devices right now are still like not that good and they need a lot of analysis and you know, you know they're still not great if you get some sort of automatic reporting of all your biomarkers and just when they got when, when they were about to tip over to bad you would then make interventions or call it quits and you had a very good protocol around that that might work that might be very very helpful now you could manage all of those things without knowing it kind of fly blind and, and i think the people that hit high levels of performance probably inadvertently they almost certainly inadvertently do so i think for the people that are that are on the wild you know, expansive, high morale responsive, high creativity side, you know, getting all your meals like locked down and baselined and, 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 and getting your consumption patterns locked down as much as you can, your sleep patterns, that would help. And then, and then perhaps you could scope and create the conditions for a limited period of time. Like we're going to go to a cabin for a week. Perhaps that could be a way that both the high morale responsive people could really explore that and run it out. And then there's like, you know, maybe two days of chilling out at the end of it or whatever. And maybe the people that are more low morale responsive can use that as an opportunity to step out of their zone outside their normal routine and be as hyped as possible and try to get chain reaction going if you wanted to. So it might not be possible to be up when you're up and neutral when you're down. If it is, it would be great, wouldn't it? Either way, um, I think there's a lot of things to think about here. Certainly start by thinking, okay, am I high morale responsive or not? And then like, where where am I taking damage and, and mitigate those on the high morale responsive side? Uh, where am I missing opportunities for expansion if you're on the low morale responsive side? Certainly managing your work and setting things up elegantly. And, and we'll explore things adjacent to this topic many, many times. Any one of these topics, like positive and negative feedback loops, we could do an hour on that. We could do 100 hours on any one of these. So we'll we'll keep coming back and we'll keep exploring. But this is something that I'm searching for, right? Is like, how can you have those breakout gangbusters, incredible runs, three days to write Rocky? That's incredible, right? How can you have that? And then just be really solid on your other days. Don't know if it's possible, but I'm searching for it. Hope you've gotten a lot of ideas on how to continue streamlining and exploring your own productivity, momentum, and morale. Thanks for joining me. I'm Sebastian Marshall, and we'll see you next time.